We're beginning a brand new series, uh, and uh, I am Dave Mitchell, also one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. And uh, we're in a brand new series called Supernatural. Uh, We are wanting to explore things that we cannot see. We want to understand some of the mysteries of a world that is all around us, but we're completely oblivious to most of it, most of our days. And yet it is doing things to us in ways that we maybe don't recognize, but once God shines the light of His truth, I pray that we'll have greater insight, and I'm going to give you some specific examples of that as we get into the message this morning. But we're going to go on a journey of seeing the unseen world. We're going to journey in to understand who Satan is and what are his tactics to destroy us. Jesus said he's came into this world to kill, steal, and destroy. We're also going to examine together in demons and angels. Uh, we're going to look at heaven. We're going to look at hell. We're going to see about spiritual warfare because there is a world all around us that is at war. And I don't want any of us to be the POWs or sitting on the sidelines. I want us to be in the midst and be able to use by God. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And yet it doesn't always feel that way. I want to tell you about a fellow by the name of Michael May. Michael May is a a man that uh, at age three became blind. For the next 42 years of his life, he didn't see a thing. Then at age 45, because of new technologies, he was able to have some kind of a transplant on his eyes. And for the first time at age 45, he was able to see as you and I see. And it was a miracle. But it was a challenge. Because Michael May, as he talked about the transformation that occurred, wasn't quite ready for what he was about to see. His challenge was this. He would look at people, but he couldn't distinguish between a man or a woman. Because he never had seen the difference between a man and a woman. He would listen to people talk to him, and they would give certain facial expressions, but he couldn't read what those facial expressions really meant. It was like a blank slate, and he was having a hard time coming to grips with what does that mean? He would have a car drive by him and it would be so close he would jump back and didn't realize that what he heard was as close as it was or as fast as it was. And he was like many who go through this transformation from blindness to sight where they often will feel as though they are in neither the blind world or the sighted world. And they have no place that they kind of feel comfortable Because the adjustment of what he is seeing doesn't always make sense to him. And so he would pepper his wife with many questions. I'm looking at this, but what is that? And she would have to describe it to him. I see this person talking to me and I saw their facial expressions. I didn't quite know what that meant. And she would have to explain it to him. And so the journey continued as he began to acquire an understanding of what he was seeing because he had never seen it before. As I read about his story, I saw a metaphor for what we're going to go into these next numbers of weeks, where we're going to see things that maybe we have not seen before, but that we are here to try to explain and make sense as to that is why that is occurring that way. Because there are powers that are working beyond us, outside of us, against us, in ways that we don't see, don't understand, but God wants us to have eyes to see them so they begin to at least a little bit make sense and we know how our response should be. 
So we're on a journey on the supernatural. And this morning, I want to lay the groundwork and put a little platform to it. And you have an outline that is available for you as we ask and answer the question, why do we need to fix our eyes on what is unseen? You may find this little tool to be helpful as we journey together. We began last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were here for the first time last week and you're here again today, thank you for coming back. We're delighted to be able to be on this journey together because I don't have it all together, and many of us around this room do not as well. But we want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be able to understand what we're seeing, and we want to understand what we don't see so life can begin to make a little bit more sense to us. So I'm going to give to you four reasons why we need to examine the unseen world. And the first goes back to last Sunday. And that is this. So that we have this hope of a future life. And just playing off of what Paul said last week as we head into what we want to look at this week, it is this. In verse 14 he says, Knowing that as God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. It goes back to that whole resurrection theme that separates Christ from all other sort of quasi-religious institutions. And so it's a resurrection. And here is the key word, that word present. Let me take you into the Greek language that Paul used. It is paraistomy. Para is the Greek word that we have the word besides, like a paramedic comes alongside the sick. And then histomy means to stand. And what Paul is describing for us is that moment in life after we die, as we go into heaven, he resurrects us to be with God in heaven, the holy God who created the heavens and the earth. And we are there, and we're not standing alone, but he's describing in a literal way that physically Jesus is standing with us. He is there beside us. It's like a best man at a wedding, or the bridesmaid at a wedding as they stand with the couple that is getting married. That we are here to witness this. We are here to support you in this. We want a journey because we know there will be times when it's hard. And here is the beauty of the resurrection of Christ. There will be a day when all of us will stand before God. There's no one in this room that is exempt from that. And taking myself as an example, the day that I die... I know for a fact that I will be in heaven with Jesus. And that I will stand there before God in heaven. And paraistomy, Jesus will be standing beside me. And Jesus will stand beside me and he'll look to the holy God of heaven on his throne. And he will say, Father, this is Dave Mitchell. I know you know him. But I'm here to witness with him. That he was the one that, age 12, placed his trust in me on that death, burial, and resurrection weekend. And I forgave him his sins then. And I've been with Dave on that journey, and Dave's had his good points, and he's had his bad points. He's had his highs, he's had his lows. But Father, he has been our child all along. And so, Father, as Dave stands here and I stand with him, He's one of us. Welcome him. Because I have prepared a place for him. And it is time for him to take up residence in his heavenly abode. That's what's going to happen. And if you don't know that's going to happen for you, we're going to invite you at the end of this message to make sure that you, when you die, you'll stand with Christ. And he'll stand with you. 
And he'll witness to the Father of the faith that you have that made you his child. Paul wants us to have that focus, that heavenly focus. As he says in Colossians 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Have that spiritual heavenly mindedness focus. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That's the focus. So I have a hope, a future hope, that God is going to care for me. C.S. Lewis put it this way. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. And so the next couple of months, we're going to think about the next world so that we can grasp what Colossians 3 says to focus on the heavenly things so that we can do more of the good things in this life. But there's a caution. Many of you probably have read a book or two of uh, maybe a child that has died and gone to heaven. And when we want to understand heaven, we're going to explore heaven. We're going to see what God says about heaven. It's a good thing. We want to focus on that. But we don't want to be betrayed or deceived about heaven. There are many who have written books and uh, they describe the day they died, the day, the day they went to heaven. They, they say and do things when they come back that makes us think, wow, they were in heaven. That's an amazing thing. There's certainly merit in at least being open-minded to study and read. But here is the only person, let me show you, the only person that I know that has been to heaven and has come back and talked about it and he didn't go to a publisher and get a book deal to write about it. All he said is this, the Apostle Paul, he died, went to heaven, came back. We don't know when it was. There was a couple of times when it could have been him when he perhaps was dead and came back to life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this cautionary word about the heavenly stories we hear. And I know how such a man, referring to himself sort of in this modest way, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. I don't know whether I was physically up there. I don't know whether I was just spiritually up there. But I was up there and God knows about that. So I'm comfortable with that man, that part of it. That man was caught up into paradise, which is heaven, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. The word inexpressible is a term that has been used referring to sacred words that we're not permitted to hear or understand. And so the Apostle Paul goes to heaven. He experiences heaven for a whatever period of time that was, he comes back to life on earth and he writes about it. And the only thing he writes about is that I can't write about it. I can't tell you. It doesn't make sense. God won't permit it. And so I see a little bit of a caution as we dabble into the unseen world, whether demons or Satan or heaven or hell, don't be misled by a lot of people who say a lot of things that maybe not have a biblically undergirding truth that comes with it. And so Paul describes in cautionary ways for us to be careful as we go into the unseen world. The second reason why we should have uh, this understanding of the unseen world is not just to have the hope of the future life, but to not lose heart in the present life. 
As he says two times in the Second Corinthians 4 passage, in verse 1 he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. And then in verse 16, as we'll read it in just a moment, he again repeats, Therefore we do not lose heart. He writes about all the resurrection power, all this heavenly home that we're going to go to, this new body in Second Corinthians 5 that we're going to be given. He writes about all these eternal unseen things. And he says, part of the reason I write about this is I don't want you to lose heart in this world. Now, there are a variety of reasons. We just touched on them last week. You have them on the Digging Deeper on the back side of the outline. But let me just touch you and show you why the unseen world is important for us to understand so we don't lose heart, for example, in prayer. Now, it was Jesus who taught on prayer in Luke 18. As He began the parable, He says, Now He's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. There's a lot of stuff I have been praying for for years. And occasionally I am tempted to think, Lord, are you sick and tired of me telling you the same thing that I've prayed about, that I've been praying about for years now? For this person to come to Christ, for this marriage to be healed, for this person to repent, for me to be a better man of God. And, and I continue to pray about all these things and it seems as though there is nothing happening whether within me or those for whom I pray. And I don't know about you, but occasionally I begin to sort of lose heart like, Lord, should I just, you know, say ditto to yesterday's prayer? Or do you want me to articulate it again? And so you get to this little phase of life where it feels a little bit cynical that God's not responding to the prayers I'm asking Him about. And if you're on this journey of faith, there's probably going to be days where you say, Lord, I'm not sure you're hearing me. You're with me in this. So Jesus teaches on this parable of prayer. He says, I don't want you to lose heart in praying. Of course I care about that. And then when you understand the unseen world as we will over the next few weeks, you'll get a better grasp as to why Some of my prayers aren't being answered as quickly as I want, or maybe for you as well. For example, let me take you back in time to 500 B.C. roughly, 550 B.C. There's a fellow by the name of Daniel. Daniel is taken captive. He's kidnapped as a Jewish man from Jerusalem. He's taken into Babylon, the area of the world that we call Iran, Iraq today. And uh, they wanted to destroy the city of Jerusalem as they did in 586 B.C as uh, Iran still would love to do even to this day. So they did it way back then as it was known as Babylon. And Daniel is in this foreign fortress of King Nebuchadnezzar and he's given this vision of all the things that God wants to do and why was he taken as he was and what's going on. So Daniel does what godly people do. He begins to pray about it. God, I want insight as to what these things mean. As he prays, God's not answering him. And then we have a revelation, a revealing in Scripture. We have an analysis by God of why those prayers are not being answered. And here it is. In Daniel chapter 10, this angel, Gabriel, comes to Daniel. Now, this is not some fantasy thing, some you know hooped-up story of mythology. This is real. We need to come to grips with the reality of the spirit world. The angel Gabriel comes and visits Daniel. And he says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. I heard it the first time, Daniel. I know you've been repeating this prayer daily, but I heard it the first time, and I need to hear that from God. 
And I have come in response to your words. I would love to have Gabriel show up some morning, although I'd be freaked out like crazy if he did. I hopefully, uh, anyways. All I need to know is that, God, do you hear my prayers? And I'll wait. Then Gabriel understands and explains why his prayer has not been answered. He goes on. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. Now, who is that? That, That's not some person on earth. That's a demonic being. It's a fallen angel that we will explore. We will look into those beings and their fallenness. And it's a powerful, it shows in this passage, there is a hierarchy of angels and demons that are out there. Some more powerful than others. And there is one demon that is situated over the kingdom of Persia. Today we call it Iran. It's no wonder this demonic oppression that is upon this nation of Iran is as it is today where they openly, openly preach the destruction of the nation of Israel and the anti-Semitism that is spewed out of that nation. Why is that? Well, there is a Persian demon that is overseeing this nation. And this demon prevented Gabriel from coming from God to Daniel in that region of the world. As it goes on to say, for 21 days, this powerful demon, more powerful than Gabriel, prevented Gabriel's access to Daniel. Then behold, Michael, one of the most powerful angels that are out there, one of the archangels, came, the chief prince, and gave Gabriel success over this evil demon that rules over Persia. He came and he helped me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia, these evil demons. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to you, your people in the latter days. Your people referring to the Jewish people. Referring to the days that followed 500 B.C. Some of which we have seen fulfilled in the 500 B.C. to Jesus' day. Some of it yet to be filled, fulfilled in the future. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. Here's the point. When you and I pray, there are demons that will do all that they can to foil an answer to that prayer. Because most of us, when we pray, we're praying according to God's will. We want healing. We want forgiveness. We want restoration. We want reconciliation, a job, money. There's a lot of things we ask for. We ask according to God's will. In this particular passage, when we look into the unseen world, we discover that there are actually demons that do all that they can to prevent, and in this case for three weeks, prevent angelic power to fulfill that prayer request. You and I are in that same world. As Paul the Apostle writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the more we come to grips with the fact that we are in a war zone and there is a spiritual war that is raging around us, the more it makes sense to me as to why there are marriages fractured, why there are bodies that are broken, why there are emotions that are distressed, why there are prayer requests that are not being answered. Why God doesn't always make sense and seems to be absent. Because there is a war that is raging around us to, as Jesus described, of the evil one, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his goal. 
And so we look into the unseen world so we do not lose heart at this existence of life and the challenges that may come our way. Thirdly, we need to look into the unseen world so that we'll experience spiritual renewal because we have the proper priorities and perspectives that God wants us to have. And that's where we come to the passage of this morning in 2 Corinthians 4. It says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. This is a temporary world. We're in a temporary zone. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That is our destiny, the eternal world that God has designed for us. And so the Apostle Paul breaks it down. He says, I don't want you to lose hope. In order to not lose heart or lose hope, therefore have your priority on the spiritual world, not on the material world. And that's a really tough thing for me, as, as even John and Julie admits. I'm with them on that. I like the creature comforts of this world. And yet God says that should not be your utmost priority. Because he says, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I love the positive assumption nature of Paul here. He says, this body is decaying. And I'm telling you, I've lived about twice as long as many of you in this room. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't get much easier the older you get. But the reality is, this material body that I know is decaying, and you can look at me and clearly say, yes, Dave, your body is decaying. I get that. Even though that is true, the priority of my life is not the body, although I want to, I want to, I exercise every day. I ride a, a road bike out in Santiago Canyon Road and someday I'll be a, I'll be the bug on the windshield of some car. I know that's going to happen someday. But I still want this body to do all that I can make it do. So I'm not saying you give up on the body, but it's decaying and yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Here, here's a little bit of a, an example of the, the body's decay and the challenge that we face. Do you realize that we spend in America $88 billion every year to make us look like we're always 25 and fit? $88 billion. Is that, that's a lot of money for me. I don't know about you, but here is what one person wrote about that struggle. At about 30 years of age, Mr. Young begins to realize that everything is gradually turning loose. It's about age 30 when I realize the reality of that. I can look back and say, yeah, 30 is the number. He presses his face close to the mirror and examines the new signs of deterioration. He's been hit by the well-known triple threat, sag, wrinkle, and droop. The pull of gravity is steadily destroying his jawline and there is no way to anchor it in place. Most of the musculature which once rippled across his chest has now melted and skidded down toward his protruding stomach. A little more of his precious hair defects to the pillow each night, eventually leaving nothing above his ears but skin and bone. His wife can hardly console him. She has troubles of her own. She brags to her husband that she still has the body of a 20-year-old. 20, 20 and he replies, well, give it back. You're getting it all wrinkled. 
It was just a joke, but it struck home. In her panic to preserve what is left, she rushes to the pharmacist and buys her jellies and her hormones and her Botox, which promises to tighten, mask, and undergird that which is sliding. But alas, her careful reconstruction washes off each evening, leaving the same old grooves and lines and bags and bumps. Then she bakes it in the sun, jiggles it in the gym, but nothing helps for long. Obviously, this is an inevitable process of aging is extremely painful to a beauty worshiper, whether masculine or feminine. Now, I recognize that some of you are going to relate to that better than others. But all of us someday will get this. We will get it. Because we have bodies that are decaying. It is a process of time. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to live a life where the body, the physical, the material, this world that is all so temporary is simply treated as temporary and not nearly as important as the spiritual world. He says about the word renewed. I love this word, anakinos. Anna is the Greek word for back. Kinos is the Greek word for, for time. It, and it's calling a new quality of time. There is a Greek word for new as if you go to a showroom of a dealership and you buy a brand new car, there is that word for new. But the word that he uses here is the word that I a couple of times have restored old cars like a MG and a Triumph. And I would have them painted in new upholstery and a new engine. And they became new, not in time, but new in quality. I wanted to bring them back to the day that they were first created over in England. And God says, this is what I want to do. I want to bring you back to the day even before the garden was corrupted of Adam's day. I want to recreate a new quality in your life, but it's going to be of the heart. It's going to be a spiritual realm. I want to bring you back to the quality that I always intended when Jesus died on that cross and was resurrected. I want that. I love the positive nature. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul's assumption is this is happening. This is the journey. Those of us who believe in Jesus, this is why we live. This is why we get up every day for spiritual renewal. Yes, we take care of the body, the temple, the Holy Spirit, but that's not my highest priority. My highest priority is that my heart, my soul is close to God and growing in knowledge and truth of His. That's why Eric talked earlier this uh, morning about our Discover Calvary class. We're not trying to create more things to fill a schedule. We're trying to create opportunities to grow a heart. That's why this Wednesday night we have Discover Jesus, Follow Jesus, an opportunity to grow my heart and my faith, an opportunity to say, yes, I value the stewardship of the material world, but my ultimate priority is to grow my spiritual world, to renew in Christ every day. One of the great illustrations of the guy that got it was Job. In Job 1 and Job 2, Satan, here's another great discovery as we get into Satan next Sunday, Satan goes up before God in heaven. And God says, have you ever thought about my servant Job, one of the most righteous men on the earth? And Satan says, well, he's righteous because he's a wealthy man. But I bet if he didn't have all that stuff, he wouldn't trust in you. God says, okay, have at it. Just don't kill him. So Satan comes down to earth and Satan takes his ten children and kills them. Satan takes his business and utterly destroys his business. And then Job 
experiences satanic power of boils all over his body. So Job is physically and materially and financially, he is ruined. Everything the world values is taken from Job. But Job understands the concept before it was even written that our outer man is decaying, but our spiritual man is to be renewed day by day. Because even in the face of all that terrible loss, that I just can't fathom that. I don't know how I would respond. But for Job, he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Why? Because his priority is not the material world. Did that hurt? Was that painful? Did his wife get on his case and nag him to curse God? Yes. It was very painful. But when those days come when the material world and the things of this body don't work well, we go back and we find that my priority is not those things. As we sing that song, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name. We sing that song. I pray that we mean it. Because that's the priority. But secondly, not just the priority, but the perspective. Paul goes on and says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's saying, as you go on that spiritual journey, as that spiritual renewal occurs... The more I walk with the Lord, I realize the light affliction is producing something greater in the future. I had a professor back at Dallas Seminary days. His name was Stanley Toussaint. He was a godly man. I love that man to hear from him and sit in his class. Stanley Toussaint had one leg that was in a steel brace. He had polio as a kid. So every time Stanley Toussaint would walk into the room, you hear this big clump and this clank of a steel brace that was around his leg as he hobbled over and limped over to his seat and would teach. And Stanley Toussaint would say, every time I, I read this passage, just 2 Corinthians 4, I look at my leg and the heavy weight that I have to carry to, to get that leg to somehow cooperate in walking. And he says, when I look at the weight of that pain, that affliction, that tells me that I've got even a greater weight of glory in heaven. And God's saying, all the pain I have on earth, the more pain down here, the more glory up there. And so we have this focus, this perspective that, that God, as you allow the material world to sometimes decay and destroy and break our hearts emotionally, I know that, God, that there is a greater weight of glory waiting for those who remain faithful because we see what you're doing. It makes sense. So he says, well, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. We look at the unseen. This word look is scopeo, the Greek word. We get the English word scope from it. And so we have words like microscope and telescope. We, we have ways to be able to see things that we can't see with the naked eye. Spiritually, it's that way. For example, here's a little test. Anybody recognize what this is under the microscope? I know. I, I wouldn't get it either. It's a banana. But that's what it looks like. You don't see it with a naked eye. Here's another example. Someone got this first hour. Anybody recognize what these things are? Under the microscope, it's Velcro. That's why it sticks so well. That is a mite. 
And sometimes at school, we have the mic comb going through people's hairs. Delightful, right? We just saw it this morning, a guitar string. Here's one that, for us oldies, it's called a record. I've got a whole box full of Chicago albums. Uh, someday a skeet shoot will be a, you know. And here's a great one. This one we should all get. I'll explain it. The reason it's so good, because this is Matthew Slater's jersey of the Patriots who won the Super Bowl a few months ago as he's standing there giving praise to God for winning the Super Bowl before a television audience. That's why it's so great. So, yeah. Yay, Matthew. The crazy thing, you talk about the, the outer body decaying away. Both of Matthew's arms still look like that. You know why? Because he had surgery on both shoulders. So he walks around like this all day. It doesn't matter how fit you are, things break. But when you put things under the microscope, you see things you don't otherwise see. When you put things under the telescope, you see things of the sky. This is what it looks like if you were up at Big Bear. Uh, as you look into the sky. But we have satellites that are able to see more closely and we begin to see the beauty of the creation that God has made. And here is, the, here is what we want to do over the next few months. We want to take a microscope called the Bible and we want to examine more carefully, more closely, more intimately in greater detail those things of the unseen world so that we can see why God is doing or why God is not doing what we think He should or should not do. So I can begin to make sense over to the mysteries of why prayer is not being answered as quickly as I think it should. Because I look into the unseen world and I realize there's a demon out there that is preventing what God would otherwise do more quickly. Why does God as a sovereign God not have His way and more powerful to intercept that demon more quickly? I don't know. I don't know some of those questions. I don't have those answers. But I do know that there is a war that is raging around me. And the more I put the microscope of biblical truth into that realm, the greater the sense and understanding there will be. And like Michael May, I begin to see things and they begin to, they begin to become more understandable, even if it's not always what I want. And as a good example of that is a fellow by the name of Elisha. Elisha is in this region of the world, well over there, we're in the Middle East again. Simply put, he has a servant. The servant looks out and he sees the surrounding army of the enemy that is going to attack them and destroy them. And there's two of them standing there and the army is all around them. And the servant goes to, to Elisha and says, Elisha, we're doomed. We're going to die. And Elisha says this to his servant. So he answered and says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant must have looked at Elisha and says, Man, there's just two of us. You've got, you got to be kidding me. But Elisha goes on and he prays. This is his prayer. O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha as the angelic army surrounded the enemy army and suddenly they had eyes to see. And what God wants us to understand is that there are angelic beings, there is a powerful war, and we sometimes feel like it's just me, I'm on my own, I don't know what to do. And God says, if you could only see the world that I see. And the more we understand it, we scope it. As we scope it out, look into it, we're going to have a journey of confidence. And here are the two takeaways. Takeaways. 
as he goes on to say in chapter 5. He talks about this new body that God is going to give to us and that He's going to create this new existence in heaven. And then he concludes with two verses in verses 6 and 9. Therefore, in light of what all that God is going to do, in light of this unseen world, this heavenly existence, this angelic power, this brand new body that He's going to give to us when this decaying body, this tent, is torn down. He says, Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that we are, while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. And he repeats it again a second time. The word therefore is concluding. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. I want our goal, I want our journey to result in greater courage and greater ambition. Courage that God is in charge. God is in control. Like Elisha, I may not see it until I pray, God, give me insight. And I want to have greater ambition. Ambition for this world? No. Ambition for God's world. Because now he's painting a portrait of all the work that he's doing. And I have this eternal perspective that this is temporary. As C.S. Lewis says, this life is merely the prelude. This life is merely the title on the book. When we go to heaven, that's chapter 1. And the story really begins to build. We need to understand this world in light of God's eternal world. And let me conclude with one family that really caught my attention because they seem to get it in a way that I hope someday I will. This family called the Eddies. They live up in Canada. Gordon Eddy was the guy that did all the maintenance of Prairie Bible Institute at the time. And his wife Lillian wrote a story of their lives of their son Darren, who at age eight came down with cancer. This is a committed Christian family that loves the Lord. And they instilled into their family their children, their boys godly values but Darren was dying and this is how she describes this is that eternal focus this unseen supernatural world she gets as as Darren lay quietly on his bed his head cradled on his arm there there was no struggle no anxiety calmed by the pervading peace and knowing it would not be long I stroked his baby soft new hair that had all fallen out from chemo with lungs filling until breathing was almost impossible, he let us know that he understood. Darren said, I'm not dying, Mom. It's just this old body. We talked of his home-to-be and the priceless gift of eternal life. He promised to greet the two young friends who had gone ahead of him just last spring and to give our love to Jesus. Certain of his own destination, Darren's concern in those last hours was for the relatives who were not ready to meet God. He wanted them to be in heaven with him. Darren, Lillian said, Remember how I told you that I couldn't look after you anymore, but that Jesus would? And yes, Mom, I remember. And so she writes, At 8.45 in the evening on New Year's Eve, the doors of heaven swung open, and a warrior was welcomed home. And she goes on to say, How real the words of Charles Spurgeon are to me now. Little faith will bring your souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your souls. Their faith and ours as a family has grown through the endurance of Darren's illness, and heaven is so much closer. When the one we love makes the journey before us, somehow the gates of glory are set ajar ever so slightly, and the ray of light escapes to link the here and the now with the forever.
and we are inclined to follow. This is a family that understands the unseen world, their priorities, their perspective, and it gives them courage and ambition to please the Lord when many a family would be embittered at a mighty God that allows their son to die at age eight. I'm not saying it's easy for them or any of us, but I'm inviting us on a journey over this day and these weeks ahead to enter into that unseen world that is going to give us every reason to not be here so that we can begin to make sense of the powers that rage around us and how it impacts us in our daily existence and invite you to be part of that journey. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning and encounter God in a fresh new way so you know Jesus is standing with you, we would love to pray with you. We can meet over here by the prayer point or on my right. As we worship, we're going to have the tables. You have the giving into the offering bucket if you would like to do that, if you're called to do that. We have the communion elements. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents the blood of Christ. These are ways that we express, yes, we value this world, but the spiritual world, that's our priority. And so we're going to use this time to to enter into that spiritual world of worshiping Almighty God. And if you'd like to have someone pray with you, we'd love to pray with you so that you can know Christ, the one who is resurrected for you. Let me pray. Help us, Father, on this journey that as we look forward to some of these very difficult areas, we know that the enemy does not want us to go into that territory. He wants us to pretend as though he's not there and it's no big deal and it's just fantasy, it's mythology. But God, we're going to walk carefully, respecting the powers that surround us, but knowing that your power is greater. We live in the victory of the resurrected Jesus. And I'm praying, Father, if there's anybody here right now, that if they were to die, would they know that they have Christ standing with them, representing them to the Father? If they don't, Father, I pray that you would bring them forward. We shine the light of truth and bring them into your presence. Thank you for that privilege as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.